Hello and welcome to the PharmaForum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, Editor-in-Chief at PharmaForum. mRNA is a term that's become much more well-known in recent years thanks to its starring role in vaccine development for COVID-19. But the world of mRNA, gene therapy, and gene silencing has much more potential than that. Dr. Marie Wilkstrom-Lindholm is SVP of Molecular Design at Silence Therapeutics, and she's joining me today to talk about the work she's doing in this exciting space. Welcome to the show, Marie. Thank you. Really happy to be here. So uh, give us a little bit of a grounder for folks who might not be um, as uh, as up to date on some of this work uh, in, in gene silencing. Um, oh, tell me a little bit just about what you do at, um, at Silence Therapeutics. Um, yes. So starting with me, yes, so we get that out of the way. Um, as you just said in the intro, I'm senior vice president and head of molecular design, which is a really cool title, I have to say. Uh, but it's also a true one. Uh, so what I'm doing and what the team is doing is that we are looking at picking the right sequences. And we will get to why that is important and what I mean with that. Uh, and the right chemistry to hit the right biology to get uh, gene silencing. So it's if there ever was applied science and applied frontline science um, that then can take you to medicines really fast, that is what we have now. Because it is um, a platform technology. I'm responsible for evolving it for our company. Uh, and it's a very, very fast-moving field where the exact chemistry of the molecules that we are hitting um, to hit different targets, uh, in our case, mostly in liver cells uh, to treat different diseases, starts with the molecular design. uh, And that's what we are doing. Um, And me, myself, I started out as a chemist. I was an academic working in life sciences for quite a few years, became further and further, um, came further and further away from uh, actually helping to treat people, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, And 15 years ago, I took the decision to step out into um, the biotech industry and start to work with one version of molecules that we use for gene silencing. Uh, They're called ASOS. Uh, And after doing that uh, for 10 years, I uh, went over to sRNAs instead. So the kind of molecules that we are using at Silence um, and have never looked back. So t- tell me a little more about, in, in terms of the process here, you know, gene silencing, as I understand it, came, came out of gene therapy, um, but, but what's the difference there and, and what are some of the kind of unique benefits of gene silencing? Gene silencing and, and gene therapy are two really quite different things. Uh, so with uh, gene therapy, in the, the sense we mostly understand that concept, you really go in and change the genome of something of a person. Uh, and if you have a, a monogenic disease, if you have a disease where you know exactly why you get the disease and it is uh, heritable, um, then you also know that you can have a chance to replace, say, the, the faulty DNA, you fo- the error in your genome and do this once. And if you're lucky, uh, the technique used will not affect uh, anything else than what you want it to affect. And you will only need to do it once. But herein lays the problem. It sounds simple. It really is not. That field has evolved quite rapidly. Um, it's safer now 
uh, and definitely closer to um, being something that can be applied uh, on patients um, than it was just, say, five years ago. But there are still some risks because when you go in and change the genome, you do it forever. Uh, and if it's not done right, then you are just moving from one problem to the next. Gene silencing, and that's what we are doing, it's a more temporary thing. So we always come back to what hopefully everyone remembers from uh, basic biology, uh, biology 101, the, uh, the central dogma. So DNA that we have, the genetic material that we have in nucleus, codes for mRNA. mRNA is the messenger from the nucleus that never changes, unless you get mutation, uh, and then gets kicked out of the nucleus into the rest of the cell. The mRNA codes for proteins, and proteins can cause disease. So when we have... Uh, what we are doing with gene uh, or RNA interference, uh, what we do is that instead of having something permanent with the risks associated, as you would do with, so to speak, proper gene therapy, and instead of uh, hitting a disease-causing protein, which is what you would do with many, say, antibodies, small molecules, uh, then we hit the intermediate. Because if you don't have uh, the mRNA, coding for the disease-causing protein, then you don't have any protein that you need to get rid of. And mRNA is constantly made, which means that we give one injection, a molecule stays inside the cell for quite a while, several months, but the effect will vein off. And then either you're healthy, or if it is something that propagates, you will get another injection, and so it goes. So we have some kind of an intermediate uh, when it comes to um, risk and when it comes to uh, permanence between gene therapy and anything that just treats the disease by treating the symptom of it. Got it. The more kind of traditional therapies. Yeah. So what are what are some of the different areas that you're looking to use this kind of broad category of technology in, in terms of diseases? Um, so the big problem with our molecules, uh, and any the problem for anyone else working in this industry is to actually get the molecules into cells. Um, because we are talking about two strands of RNA, that's what an sRNA is, um, that are annealed, and it's a pretty big molecule, and it's charged at neutral pH. It will not get into cells by itself. So we have come up with a way, something called Gunnax, uh, it's a sugar that binds the receptors that we have an awful lot of on the surface of liver cells, on hepatocytes. So after we inject this, because it needs to be injected, gets into the blood, it goes to the liver, it's taken up via this very specific receptor into the hepatocytes, into the liver cells, and then gets it out into the cell and we have a long-lasting effect. That means that after this platform now has been established and it's been around for a while, and there's a small handful of product now using Galnax, uh, either for ASOS, single-stranded uh, RNA interference, or sRNAs, double-stranded RNA interference, gets into uh, the cell, and we have, as I said, a quite long-lasting effect. It is limited to liver cells, and therefore limited to diseases that starts in the liver cells. That doesn't mean that we are limited to liver diseases, though, because there are quite a few diseases that originates in the liver, 
but the effect is there for the whole body. Uh, we have chosen uh, as cellist therapeutics uh, to focus uh, on cardiometabolic diseases, rare diseases originating in the liver cells uh, and the complement system. But in theory, any kind of disease that is caused by too much of a certain protein or caused by a faulty protein uh, and originates in liver cells, we could treat any of them. And the liver cells, thats is that kind of a temporary limitation just because those are the easiest ones to get into? Yeah, exactly. This is really one of the, the biggest challenges, but also opportunities for the whole field. Because after we discovered as a field uh, that these sugars, the galax, that binds to these special receptors and is taken up by hepatocytes, once that pathway was established, we kind of know what to look for uh, on other cell types. And we want to find something similar. And I would say that looking at the recent development, uh, the liver cell targeting is definitely the first one there. Uh, and we know it works. But now we know uh, competitors, uh, companies, but also academic teams uh, that are shown really good results with other targeting. We call it targeting moieties, but think about it as address tags for specific cells. Um, there are people that have now shown that the same principle uh, that we are using in the liver cells can be applied on uh, in the CNS. Um, quite good effect uh, across cell types in the CNS. Um, there's been some indications that it's going to be possible to treat diseases originating in muscle uh, and also some early signs of good effect in uh, lung, for instance. So it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. And that's the beauty of this because... Really, sky is the limit. We already know how RNA interference works. And now we are at the stage where we can start thinking about how can we get it into other cells? Because there are, of course, lots of diseases uh, that are caused by too much of a protein or a faulty protein that originates in other cell types. And, and what diseases, I mean, are we talking about? Is, is this potentially like in, in oncology? Is this addressing cancers? Is it um, like chronic conditions, acute conditions? What, what's the uh, limit of the potential here? Um, now, this is only my personal opinion and uh, former uh, experience as well. Oncology is tempting because it is really quite efficacious if we can get um, the sRNA into, into the cancer cells. But it has to be a target that is absolutely essential uh, for the cancer cells and that we cannot easily get escape mutants for. Because otherwise, because what we do, and maybe I should go back to, to the technology as such, what we do is that we try to find a completely unique sequence uh, so a string of nucleic acids in the mRNA expressing the disease-causing protein. And it has to be completely unique because otherwise we're going to have downregulation of other proteins as well. So that's the, the first challenge. And that's why we are relying a lot on uh, bioinformatics and are starting to apply machine learning on this. So find a completely unique sequence. In our case, it's uh, a series of 19 nucleotides that we are hitting. So we call it a 19 mer. Uh, that's the target sequence. It has to be unique for the protein you want to hit. And then we can accept uh, some, uh, we call it mismatches. It doesn't have to be completely perfect, but best effect will be for just one complete denial. 
uh, alignment with target. And if you then think about how quickly cancer cells uh, mutate, you see the problem. Mm. So yes, um, it is definitely um, a good idea to use RNA interference in oncology, but you basically want to have to hit all cancer cells at the same time, not to give them any chance for escape mutations, or you need to hit a sequence, a string of nucleotides that is so essential for the cancer cell, so they cannot uh, mutate the way around it. Otherwise, you're just going to have to develop a new sRNA and a new one and a new one as uh, the target mutates. And it can probably mutate faster than you can develop. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so that's really interesting. You mentioned at the beginning when you were talking about the difference between gene silencing and gene therapy is that gene, you know, gene therapy, you know, one issue is that you, there are unintended effects, right? Because every gene carries, does multiple jobs. Um, but this, this, um, unique targeting in this, this 19 mirror, the idea is you're, you're able to be much more precise and only inhibit the creation of, of this protein. So you avoid those kind of unexpected side effects where a gene is doing a different thing. Um, it's more like the, if you're thinking gene therapy as CRISPR-Cas, um, I think it's more a matter of uh, still making sure that you don't get insertions uh, or changes in the genome in more than one place. Uh, so, but other than that, off-target effects, um, I keep coming back to the, the design of the molecules and the bioinformatics aspect of it. It is really complicated to pick something that is completely unique and doesn't have any risk of hitting, at least to some extent, uh, other uh, proteins as well. Uh, and this is really a massive undertaking. Uh, we are using a lot of data, both doing predictions uh, based on databases, uh, so what we call the in silico design aspect. Uh, but we also, once we have picked a series of sequences that we test uh, to see if they can become drugs, uh, you kind of have a feedback loop where you look at that effect and measure the RNA in the target cells and see, do we actually have an effect downstream of hitting the target? Uh, and do we have an effect directly on more targets than what we want. So that's what we are referring to as off-target effects. Um, and I think most people in the industry now are using a combination of the design that is completely virtual in silico and then just feeding back, okay, what does uh, the transcriptome look like uh, once we actually have treated cells uh, and animals with these molecules? Uh, because sometimes we have a bit more complicated um, effects than we first anticipated, let's put it that way. Got it. Yeah. So it's part of the reason this is just happening now is because it you um it requires not only the technology to 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 actually get in there and do the the work, but also that that enormous amount of back end computing um, required to find the targets. Yes. Uh, and it's it's amazing to follow that development uh, because we we basically have a checklist of what disease targets, and then after that, what target sequences would be the best ones. Uh, and as I've been doing this for 15 years, I mean, I've, I've seen how this has developed. Uh, and also the know-how about uh, how these molecules can work. This is possibly a bit too technical, but when I first got into this industry, we thought that we only had an effect on the exons. 
So the part of uh, the mRNA that actually codes for a protein, it turns out that nope, that was not correct. Uh, and as we then have to also make sure that we don't hit any introns and ideally also none of the uh, non-coding sequences, the amount, sheer amount of transcriptome that you want to avoid uh, increase so much. So I don't think we would have gotten to this point unless uh, bioinformatics and computing power had grown together with the understanding of the biology. That, you know, I think that's not, not too technical, but really interesting. <laughs> Um, in the, in the minutes we have left, which, you know, we have a little bit of time, um, tell me about where this is going, what you're excited about for the future and, and sort of what the next frontiers are, barriers that you you have to get past. I would say, and again, this is probably just my personal opinion that we have, I would say that we have three really big ones, uh, but they are also, they are barriers, but they also are opportunities. So first, and we already touched on this, we want to be able to, to get these molecules into other cells because that will just expand the uh, number of diseases we can treat a lot. So uh, we refer to it as extra hepatic targeting. And as I said, there's a lot of activity going on there. Then there is one thing that is deeply frustrating, and that is we inject this into the bloodstream. It needs to get not just into cells, but into the right place of the cells. It's less than a thousandth of the amount that gets injected that actually gets to the end station, so to speak. So anything we can do to reduce, uh, first of all, excretion of molecules that don't even get to the right cell, but also do something about what we call endosomal escape. So it needs to get into cells, but it also gets, uh, needs to get into the right place of cells. And for that, it needs to escape the tiny vesicles uh, that they end up in after being taken up into cells. That's called endosomal escape. So that is one thing that we need to work on. Uh, and there is a lot of activities going on there because just increasing the amount that ends up in the cells, say factor two, would ideally, uh, it would mean that we can reduce the dose of factor two as well. Which brings us to the third challenge, and that is manufacturing. So these molecules are made using methods that were established originally several decades ago. And it's something called solid phase synthesis. If you can imagine we are adding the nucleotides like pearls on a string. Uh, and it works, but it's not the most efficacious process. And when we now have more and more uh, RNAi molecules reaching the market, the methods that were established several decades ago are simply not going to work. Uh, for instance, we are using a component called acetonitrile as part of flushing through the system when we add one more, one more, one more nucleotide. There isn't enough uh, acetonitrile in the world to meet the demands that we project for the next, say, three to four years. Uh, so we need to really develop uh, the manufacturing methods and we need to make them more environmental friendly because the way we are making the molecules now uh, it's not optimal for that perspective. So these are the three big challenges. Get it into all cell types we want, get more of it into the right place in the cell, and just make it easier to make the molecules at larger scales. Interesting. So so a lot of um, a lot of work to do, but a lot of promise, as you say, opportunity. Oh yeah. Um and anything else we haven't talked about yet that you wanna uh, discuss or or any um, anything you think folks sh- should know about this space if they don't in the in the pharma space? 
Yeah, uh, so you did provide me with a series of questions, and I think they were really good ones. And one thing that we haven't touched on, uh, and this is a question I always get, is so what does um, what sets silent therapeutics apart from the rest in the industry? Um, I actually would like to say that one thing that is pretty unique, I think, for the oligotherapeutics field is that we are all trying to hit the same biology. And of course, we are competing with each other and we are doing that uh, through patenting and, I mean, what you would do. But there is also a very, very strong collaborative uh, spirit. Uh, There's something called the Oligonucleotide Therapeutic Society. I'm on the board of directors of that. And this is an organization that's been around for 20 years. And it is really an arena where people active in this space try to share as much general information as possible because we are still learning. We really are still learning about how to make these molecules the best possible way. And there's a lot of room for improvement in what you would call a pre-competitive space. So the dialogue between the different companies and academic teams that are working in this area, I think is pretty amazing. And it does uh, give me hope that we jointly will be able to solve some of the problems. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Marie. This has been really interesting and and a great... uh education for me certainly um and yeah i I, I wish you luck moving forward on in this kind of exciting space thank you my pleasure i mean obviously this is my favorite topic so (laughs) i really really like what we can do with these molecules and i'm not fearing the challenges we have ahead because there are lots of really clever people working on this That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.